Hey folks, Andrea Howard here. Thanks for joining us for this week's content from SimSec. On the Bilge Pump side of our podcast feed, Royal Navy Commander Stephen George, an aeronautical engineer, fostered a riveting conversation on the successes and blunders of the F-35, an episode that is sure to bust many myths around the program. If you find yourself in the spirit of Giving Tuesday this week, please consider supporting us by donating to our annual Right, Fight, Win holiday donation campaign directly via our website, and make SimSec your preferred nonprofit on Amazon Smile so you can support us while you shop. And lastly, the episode you are about to hear sets the scene of what life under the sea might look like with the subsurface Internet of Things. Sea Control welcomes Julie Angus and Michael Brasser to discuss how this possibility can become a reality in the approaching decades. As a reminder, all views expressed are our own and are not representative of any institution with which we may be otherwise associated. Sea Control, posted by the Center for International Maritime Greetings, Sea Warriors. Let's dive, dive back into Sea Control. I'm Andrea Howard, one of your new SimSec hosts, and today we're discussing the creation of a global accelerator network as it pertains to the launch of the digital ocean. We are joined by two incredible guests. Julie Angus, the CEO and co-founder of Open Oceans Robotics, and Michael Brasser, who served as the first director of the NATO Maritime Unmanned Systems Innovation and Coordination Cell. As a reminder, all opinions expressed are personal opinions and are not representative of any institutions with which we are otherwise associated. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we kick off our discussion on your fascinating article, I would love for our listeners to hear a bit about you. Julie, tell us about your work with Open Oceans Robotics and how you acquired the title of National Geographic's Adventurer of the Year. Yeah, for sure. And thank you so much, Andre, for having us on this podcast. It's really great to be able to discuss this with you. So I uh, co-founded Open Ocean Robotics, and I'm the CEO of the company. We produce solar-powered ocean drones or uncrewed surface vehicles that can go out on the ocean for months at a time collecting ocean data uh, that they can then communicate in real time. So providing a solution to protecting and understanding our oceans and really serving customers in, in a range of industries, uh, as well as academia and uh, government departments. I guess I've loved the ocean for a long time, and, and that is in part where the award uh, from National Geographic came from for Adventure of the Year. That award specifically was for an expedition that I did um, rowing across the Atlantic Ocean, so from Portugal to Costa Rica. And uh, it, it was the first time a woman had rowed across the Atlantic from mainland to mainland. Uh, and it was quite a long and slow journey. So, so that took me five months. Um, there were just two of us in the, in the boat and, uh, it's a, you know, a fascinating way to explore the ocean. Um, and in many ways, uh, led to the development of the company open ocean robotics, because, you know, you really feel how large the ocean is, uh, and how poorly understood and how difficult it is to access those remote places when you are on the ocean for so long. So, so yeah, it's kind of been a bit of the journey that got me here today. I think that may qualify as possibly the greatest sea story of all time. It's certainly high up on the list. <laughs> um, but how tremendous, too, that that resulted in the founding of Open Ocean Robotics. 
And then, Michael, flipping over to you, can you walk us through your journey with the U.S. Navy that led you to NATO and ultimately to this great project in collaboration with, with Julie? Like Julie, I love the ocean. I grew up on an island in, in South Carolina, and, you know, I wasn't planning to join the Navy, but I I went to Vanderbilt on an ROTC scholarship and, and joined the Navy soon after about, and that was in 97, and sailed on a bunch of different ships, uh, commanded uh, a PC, and then um, an LCS. We sailed the LCS. Uh, speaking of the massiveness of the ocean, we sailed the uh, LCS back from Singapore and the Pacific is just enormous. And I just really got an appreciation for how big the ocean is and, and just how much I love it. So I could, it was kind of one of the things that drew me towards, um, Julie trying to imagine somebody rowing across the ocean is just incredible. Did a, a bunch of deployments, but my first deployment was a NATO deployment, uh, back in 98. And I had so much fun. We hit 18 port visits in the Mediterranean in the summer of 98. And it was just fantastic. And I'd always wanted to get back to, to NATO and to Europe. And so when I was up for orders, I was, uh, I needed to do a joint tour. I asked my detailer, Hey, can I do anything in Europe? And my detailer kind of owed me one because he jammed me with a uh, 32 month XO tour. So. For all the the uh, surface warfare officers out there, they know that's a very, very long XO tour. And so I asked him, well, what about Europe? He said, well, what about Brussels? I got sent over to the U.S. mission to NATO in Brussels and had the NATO, uh, Naval Armaments portfolio. And soon after arriving, we, we launched a maritime unmanned systems initiative with 14 nations. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later, I hope. But uh, that's uh, eventually how I got connected with Julie. She's got this fantastic uh, company. And, you know, we were interested in, in some of the stuff she was doing. That's a little bit of my background. Another fascinating story, too, on how you got to this point. Julie, do you want to talk a little bit about how you met on the Innovation Advisory Board? Yeah, so the Innovation Advisory Board is really a, a remarkable group of people across a, a broad spectrum of industries and knowledge. Uh, and the goal is to think innovatively about how we can advance maritime unmanned systems. Uh, so when Michael reached out to, um, you know, tell me a bit more about the board uh, and the project, it's something that immediately fascinated me. Um, um, you know, I feel very strongly that uh, innovative technology like robotics, like AI, is going to play a transformative role in advancing our ability to protect and, and understand our oceans. So I think it's tremendously exciting uh, that NATO is taking on uh, such an ambitious uh, initiative like this. I definitely agree. You know, Michael brought up the point that Traversing the ocean and the fashions that both of you have just reveals the expansiveness of it. And as somebody who has traversed the Pacific a bit in a submarine while submerged, I totally agree <laughs> with that sentiment and could not agree more that that transformative role of unmanned systems in the undersea domain will be hugely important as we move forward. So as we dive into this episode, 
A fundamental premise for our discussion is why oceans are so vital to the global economy. And this will set up our discussion, too, of how the undersea domain pertains to that. So, Julie, can you explain this importance to us, as well as the meaning of the term blue economy? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, our oceans are huge. You know, they cover 70% of our globe. They're critical to so many economies. The ocean economy is 2.5 trillion right now. It is growing rapidly. Um, when you think about international shipping, you know, 90% of goods travel on the ocean. There's, you know, offshore energy is tremendously important. There's significant advances now ma- being made in offshore wind to provide uh, green energy. There's commercial fishing. Um, you know, fish is the primary source of protein for a third of the planet. So not only is it important to our economy and the livelihood of a lot of these nations, but but to the health of their planet. And then when you look at the, the security issues as well um, between nations, um, also in terms of illegal fishing, pollution, there's just so many issues on our ocean um, that need to be addressed. Uh, and they're incredibly important for not only the health of our planet, the security and our economy. Yes, it's hard to fully capture just how intricately the economy is tied into the ocean. So flipping over to Michael, you co-authored the article that prompted this podcast entitled Creating a Global Accelerator Network to Launch the Digital Ocean, which we will include in the podcast footnotes. In this piece, you note that the global blue economy is expected to grow $3 trillion by 2030. So what is blue tech and how is it spurring this growth? So, yes, thanks, Andrea. I actually had the, the same question before I started this project uh, a couple of years ago. But before I was introduced to uh, Michael B. Jones at the uh, Maritime Alliance, uh, I was asked to moderate a, a panel at Blue Tech Week in San Diego. I really got introduced to this really vibrant community of Blue Tech companies. A, a Blue Tech company is really anything sustainable, science based ocean and water industry. So it could be anything from a solar farm or or wind out at sea. The stuff that I'm particularly interested in on the project was maritime robotics. So like Julie's company, for example, her USBs are powered by solar. There's other maritime robotics out there that are powered by wind, wave energy, uh, and really kind of the sustainable uh, aspect of getting after understanding the ocean at a very in-depth level, but doing it in a sustainable manner. And so uh, that's a little bit the blue tech industry. I don't know, Julia, if maybe I missed something you could comment on that. Yeah, I think that was really well said, Michael. You know, it's it's a broad range of industries, you know, everything from ocean robotics to offshore energy to sustainable maritime to, uh, you know, growing seaweed or aquaculture. Um, but as, as Michael said, it's combining um, innovation, economics, and sustainability. And I think that, um, you know, triple bottom line is really 
really important to the blue tech industry, uh, looking at not only building profitable companies, but companies that will ensure the oceans uh, stay sustainable, that industry is able to operate more effectively and in in a more environmentally uh, friendly manner. So it's all of those. And, And as Michael said, you know, it is an industry that is growing rapidly. I think we've seen uh, increased awareness of the important role that our oceans play uh, recently. I'd say over the last few years, you know, a lot of that attention was drawn to the ocean um, based on the pollution we see on our oceans. So when you think of, you know, those, all that plastic pollution and gyres out in the middle, it's a very visual reminder about our oceans not being this infinite resource um, that can, will continuously replenish itself. And I think that really drew more people's attention to the ocean um, and looking at solving many of the other challenges the oceans face um, and at the same time finding um, more solutions to allow us to operate better on the ocean. So I think it's we're in a really great place right now for blue tech companies. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of interest. Um, so that's why, you know, something like um, an accelerator program and, and this initiative is just really well timed. That's a great explanation from both of you. Thank you for building off one another. Specifically, blue tech companies will serve as the major driver to create an internet of things for the ocean. Julie, what exactly does this look like for the ocean? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges we face on our oceans right now is that we just don't know much about it. You know, 80% of our oceans are unmapped, unexplored, unobserved. And that's because it is incredibly challenging and dangerous and costly to go out there. I mean, you know, you both have spent so much time on the ocean, you know what it's like. Um, There's a reason um, that, you know, it's difficult to get data from the ocean. So I think an internet of things for the ocean or a digital ocean is really a way to bring a level of connectivity and understanding to the ocean that we have not yet seen and that we can, you know, envision. So everything, it's basically from satellite to seafloor connectivity. So thinking about combining assets, um, whether it's subsea sensors, submersibles, surface uh, vehicles, and aerial drones, and linking that all to satellite comms, and then being able to network that information so that you can understand things like, you know, where is there a risk? Where is there an oil spill? You know, where is there illegal fishing? Um, You know, where is there pollution? What is the weather like here? And that base of knowledge can inform so much from, you know, security to industry to our understanding of, um, you know, the impacts of climate change or overfishing. So there's a real potential to create this digital ocean and and the advances that we're seeing in uh, robotics and AI in communication, you know, thinking about low earth orbit satellites, um, that's all going to be transformative and allow us to understand the oceans in a way that will um, really allow us to not only protect our oceans and rebuild them, um, but to to use them in a way that really benefits humanity and our economies. Absolutely. This progress that you outlined is so exciting. But Michael, what are the barriers to growth for blue tech companies and who are the major consumers for their services? 
Well, that's a that's a great question. And, and you know, I'm speaking from the government side. I know that uh, the governments are not always the best customers. And I'm sure Julie can attest to this. Uh, we have sometimes a hard time of defining our requirements. We're not always sure what we want when we're when we're putting something on contract. We're slow to deliver capital. I, there's a lot of ongoing um, projects now with the Defense Innovation Unit and Naval X to try and accelerate that. Uh, but in in general, from the government side, we're we're not fantastic customers. And you know, in the life of a startup, they've got to cross over kind of the valley of death to to you know get their minimal viable product to to market. And I'm sure Julie can comment on this. So from the government side, I guess navies would be interested in this, Coast Guards, NOAA would be interested in this sort of uh, technology, any sort of maritime uh, security organization. Uh, obviously at NATO, we're, we're very, um, I should speak in the past tense because uh, I've moved on since NATO, but uh, the Alliance is very interested in uh, maritime security and, and the, what uh, Blue Tech has to offer in that space. Uh, probably Julie, did you want to comment on that since you're you're a you're a startup yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I would just echo the things that Michael has said. And government is actually a large customer in uh, the blue tech space, and that is that can be challenging. Um, you know, as Michael mentioned, many of the the challenges in working with a government cus- customer. You know, a long sales cycle. There, there's also the difficulty of building a company where customer is primarily government. So from a venture capital perspective, from an investment perspective, that's why many blue tech companies are really um, dual uh, use. So they not only pursue applications that would target the government, but applications that would target industry. And I know that this is, you know, true for us. Um, you can develop an application that has multiple uses and being able to target industry first um, can you can give you more immediate returns. Uh, but that same technology could have applicability uh, in defense or for gov- other government departments. So I think those are some of the challenges facing blue tech companies. I think also historically companies that uh, develop uh, hardware um, are more difficult to grow than those that are more software based and and a lot of blue tech or clean tech company does have that hardware component. So, um, you know, for us, it's really important to uh, know that hardware is important, but also software, AI, um, the digital side of things is incredibly important as well. And so um, looking at ways to potentially return higher rates of growth to investors is is crucial for a lot of blue tech companies. That's a great point. And in between those gaps of government contracting and the long wait periods, accelerators may be the possible solution for struggling blue tech companies. Your article impressively notes that the number of accelerators increased tenfold in the United States between 2008 and 2014. And now there are more than 7,000 accelerators and incubators globally. Julie, how do these accelerators work? 
Yeah. Accelerators are incredibly important for growing early stage companies and building that innovation ecosystem so that we have incredible technologies that will transform, uh, you know, the way we do things now. So there's a few different models for accelerators. Um, but basically what an accelerator does is it helps a early stage company that may be at the stage of just an idea or maybe a prototype and it helps uh, them get the resources to take that technology to a farther more advanced stage and those resources could be mentorship they could be financial they could be a pilot customer Um, and I can give you a few examples um, because we are an early stage company Um, you know we're two years old right now Um, we have a 12 staff and and we've gone through a number of accelerators as we've grown from you know a technology that was uh, really very premature to one that is is being deployed right now and and for us they have been really uh, beneficial so um, you know Michael mentioned San Diego. They've got some great resources there. Um, There's also some great resources in Washington, Maritime Blue. On the East Coast of the U.S., you have Sea Ahead in Boston, which is an accelerator that we're a part of. Um, We did one called Creative Destruction Labs on the East Coast of Canada, an ocean stream. um, and, And we're involved with Mars Discovery District, another accelerator. So all of those have been uh, really good for, for growing our company. And I think accelerators do play a crucial role. And we're seeing, uh, I would say, an increased focus in, in the ocean environment. And we're also seeing a lot of collaboration between different countries um, in these accelerators, which I think is, is important in all industries, but especially in the blue tech industry, because, um, you know, our, our oceans know no borders. Um, Um, And we do need to work internationally to deploy this technology. Right. And the crux of your argument in your article is that a global accelerator network could turbocharge that blue tech sector. Michael, how would this global network come to fruition? Who is seated to lead the charge? Thank you, Andrew. A great question. And Julia kind of alluded to it. Um, The the international flavor of this is just uh, readily apparent. And I think this is a perfect fit for a NATO lead. You know, NATO is 30 nations, 24 of them are maritime nations, and the other six are, you know, still dependent on the maritime uh, for portions of their economy. So it's kind of a a natural fit for an alliance um, like NATO. And, you know, there's plenty of resources in, in this regard Together, the combined uh, defense expenditures for the alliance is $1 trillion. Uh, it, it would be, a, in my opinion, a perfect place to kind of stitch together all these various uh, accelerators, which Julie alluded to earlier. We've got a really exciting project uh, that we just launched at NATO a couple of years ago, Maritime Unmanned Systems Initiative, which started out with 14 nations, and it's growing to 18 soon. And basically, the premise of the initiative was, hey, we're all working on in this maritime unmanned systems. We're all at different stages. Doesn't it make sense to work together on this? And, and, and the, really, the focus of the initiative is uh, vertical integration, so above, on, and below the water, and then horizontal 
integration, so across allies. So you could see why an initiative like that might be a great place to help stitch these these various accelerators together towards a common end, like a digital ocean. And that's really the crux of of the article, which uh, Julie and I authored. Michael, that's fantastic. Can you talk a bit more about this Maritime Unmanned Systems Initiative? And especially, as you mentioned in your article, how it might change deterrence in the undersea domain. So uh, thank you. Thank you. So this was launched about, like I said, two years ago. NATO itself, uh, may not have a reputation for being uh, super agile, but I can tell you, based on my two years there, it's a very, very um, agile organization and getting uh, quicker. And this is kind of a demonstration of that. So the Alliance itself is a consensus organization. So it requires that all 30 members agree on something to move an effort forward. But the Maritime Unmanned Systems Initiative is a multinational effort with a NATO badge on it, right? So it's 14 nations. And um, let's say five of those 14 wanted to work together and, and put together, an, or actually we have launched an ASW barrier project, a smart defense project. I think it's got seven or eight nations on it. So it's just grouping together like-minded nations, going out and working quick. To, to get some real capability to the alliance and, and the operators. The, in particular, in coming back to your original question, in the undersea domain, I know Julie talked about the digital ocean and the Internet of Things. All that stuff is wonderful for learning more about the ocean, but it's also very good for <laughs> detecting large metal objects uh, sailing underneath the ocean, which I'm sure you're well aware of. Um, so that could that's very interesting from a security perspective and, and could have a very, very strong deterrent capability for those uh, that might uh, think they're sailing around undetected. But actually, with a, a basically a digital ocean, we would have more situational awareness below the water. Yeah, Michael, I think my official posture there has to be that I have no further <laughs> comment on your uh, anti-submarine warfare capabilities uh, explanation. But, you know, Julie even mentioned yeah. earlier that 80% of the ocean is unmapped. And so even just for undersea navigation, whether from a military or commercial standpoint in the future, um, there are some very serious consequences to how that Maritime Unmanned Systems Initiative changes the availability and openness of that undersea domain. Um, Julie, do you have any comments on that? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. And, um, you know, when Michael was talking about uh, the alliance and the resources it has and the, the shared vision, I think that is a really important point. Um, and, and for our oceans, you know, th this is so crucial that we consider the interoperability of systems being developed by different nations um, because it, it needs to work together. You know, we need to link all of those different 
different assets. So we want to be developing things that, that can meet those goals. And also when you think of the budget, like a $1 trillion defense budget, um, you know, one of the big challenges for blue tech companies is, is getting customers and having a big enough market. Um, so when you create a system that, um, or an initiative that puts out goals that meet these, you know, very significant requirements and, you know, you encourage blue tech companies to come up with solutions that are safer, more affordable, better, and that there's the potential payoff and customers that will pilot and eventually procure that technology. That is very powerful. And that can really do a lot to grow this entire industry, not only for defense, um, but for commercial and industry use as well. Um, so I think, you know, NATO is really positioned well um, to to help drive technology that does solve some of these incredibly challenging uh, problems in the ocean, but also provide solutions beyond defense that will really help um, the, the ocean ecosystem. Definitely. And, uh, Andrea, I had, a, I had a comment on that as well. And, and from the defense side, I mean, yes, we are talking $1 trillion, you know, combined budgets of all the allies, but you know, we're going, uh, eventually we'll get into a post-COVID environment and, and there's going to be some huge constraints on, on our budgets, our, our defense budgets. And, you know, we can't be spending, you know, $1.8 billion for warships. And the maritime robotics looks very attractive from a uh, fiscal perspective as well. You know, you can cover a lot of space uh, a lot of maritime domain at a relatively uh, less expensive cost if we were able to to actually build the digital ocean that uh, Julie and I write about. Definitely. The defense industry and NATO clearly have a shared vision. But even at the same time that Blue Tech is surging, this vision extends to the United Nations. So, Julie, can you talk about the United Nations Decade of Ocean Science for Sustainable Development campaign that's launching next year? What is the significance of that? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that campaign, um, it, it, the goal is really to reverse the decline in ocean health and to bring together stakeholders from around the globe um, to ensure that the oceans uh, meet our needs now and in the future. And I think this is really just another indication of how, as a globe, we're coming together to really recognize the importance of our oceans, the importance of of science, of innovation in coming up with solutions to combat some of these very significant problems that we're facing on our ocean, whether it's from uh, security threats, from overfishing, from pollution, um, and recognizing that we can't do things the way we've done it before. We have to find solutions that are better, that are more affordable, that are safer, um, that utilize advances that innovative companies um, that, you know, out of the box thinkers can bring towards it. So I, I think it's, you know, really exciting. Um, there's going to be a lot of resources and focus uh, paid on the oceans on advancing uh, um, science and other initiatives, including business initiatives. And I think it's just an indication of uh, the growing interest in, in protecting our oceans and, and finding solutions there. 
right? This vision of collaboration and protection sounds fantastic, but there's obviously going to be some barriers and challengers to that. So Michael, who do you foresee as the major challengers to a NATO-led accelerator for unmanned systems and to this new United Nations campaign? A couple a couple of challenges come to mind. The first one is resources, which I, I kind of alluded to earlier. I think uh, we're going to have the budgets. There's going to be a lot of downward pressure on uh, defense budgets, but just budgets in general as we as we come out of the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. So resources is, are going to be an issue. And then one of the things that uh, you know, I'm an operator. Uh, I really want to get the technology in the hand of the operators, uh, but we we have such massive bureaucracies, and they're not positioned well for this age of exponential technological growth. And I think we need a real culture change, and not only uh, the U.S. government, but you know, governments in general. They've got to move quicker. They've got to they. They've got to focus on the problems we're solving. And, 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 and there's such a huge opportunity here with our oceans. And I would just hate to see our bureaucracies. I wish they could just, you know, get out of our own way and, and get, get to the exciting work that's ahead of us. So resources and bureaucracy, we've got to get to yes on this and, and, and other kind of exciting projects. Um, and, and I've, you know, there's, I mentioned it earlier, there's a lot of really good things happening in Brussels at NATO. I hated to leave, as a matter of fact. Um, Rob Murray, the head of innovation there, is is really doing some exciting things in finance and, and, you know, building a really strong innovation ecosystem. The Maritime Unmanned Systems Initiative is really, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a startup and it's kind of a rapid prototype of a new way of, of doing, uh, government. And so it was really exciting to be a part of that. I liked, uh, I like what I see going on in Brussels and it gives me um, hope for the future going forward. It's great to hear that the public side of the public private partnership is rethinking its structure and trying to become more innovative. Julie, on the private side of that, do you have any comments on some of these challenges and barriers? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think that the challenges and barriers are the same ones that companies face in growth all the way from a technological idea to, you know, crossing that valley of death. Um, So, you know, when you look at our academic institutions, there's great um, research and ideas coming out of that. We need to transform that into solutions that are then commercialized and delivered. So that's one stage. Then the second stage is, you know, growing those small ideas into slightly larger companies um, and that's often where accelerators come in um, so that they can pilot and get some early traction and then there's the scale-up stage you know we need to grow those companies from you know five to ten people to 50 or, or 200 people where they're delivering these solutions so so each of those is, is challenging um, from a company perspective I think accelerators can play a role I think uh, you know, governments rethinking how they procure uh, technology, um, closer collaboration between large companies and early startups. So there's a number of solutions um, that have been explored and are
are being implemented in different ways that, you know, a, a NATO-based accelerator system could certainly, uh, you know, move the dial significantly on, on many of those issues. Most certainly. And Julie, are there parties outside of NATO and the accelerators that we discussed, whether governmental or non-governmental, who are stakeholders and potential collaborators within this global accelerator network? Who have we missed talking about so far in this discussion? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it is a big network. Um, so you mentioned, um, the academic institutions and marine science centers, you know, all of those organizations that do research, that develop technology. Um, there's, you know, companies, both small scale and larger scale that are already deploying technologies. There's the industries that are operating on the ocean right now. Um, there's the, the government and non-government programs that support this kind of uh, work. So, you know, a lot of ocean work is actually supported by nonprofits. So, for example, uh, right now, our company is doing some work in uh, illegal and unregulated fishing enforcement, and it's a project supported by a nonprofit um, because, you know, it's, it's a huge issue facing our oceans and we don't have any adequate solutions. Um, so, and then venture capital as well, you know, um, funding sources to grow companies, um, you know, debt financing, banks. Um, we need to bring together all the parties um, that are involved in developing and growing uh, ocean companies um, to be able to address that. And, and some of that, you know, occurs organically, um, you know, so for example, here in Victoria, I'm part of a steering committee that's building an ocean hub and an ocean cluster. Uh, so in, in Canada, you know, we have um, on the East Coast, we have quite a robust maritime sector that has ocean accelerators and, and clusters that I've been involved with. Uh, but on the West Coast, we haven't really coalesced in that same manner, even though we have, you know, incredible resources, um, um, incredible academic institutions, you know, lots of very innovative early stage and later stage companies. And geographically, you know, we're positioned as a gateway to the Arctic. You know, we can work closely with um, companies all along the, the U.S. and Canadian uh, West Coast. But we need to come together. So we need to bring those different stakeholders, um, government, uh, industry, defense, startup, venture capital, all of them together. And, and that is, um, you know, basically what these accelerators and these networks do is they start, they act like a nucleus, drawing together um, all the different stakeholders you need to grow the innovation network and then linking them across countries, or across a country, and then from nation to nation. Uh, so, so definitely community, bringing together stakeholders is very, very important in this industry. Julie, you just painted a fantastic vision of collaboration all up and down the West Coast. And Michael, I'm curious to hear what your perspective is in terms of the ideal short-term deliverables and long-term deliverables for this project. Uh, for the, for the uh, global network of accelerators? Yes, absolutely. Or just even more okay. expansively, the the growth of the undersea domain in, in a collaborative sense? It's a really, really good question. I, I think the, the short term would be really to stitch together these 
innovation ecosystems into a global network, right? And so we've got, as Julie mentioned in, in Victoria, we've got, you know, we're in Brussels, we were part of a really interesting um, innovation ecosystem at the Imperial College of London, the University of Porto, down at the Center for Maritime Research and Experimentation in La Spezia, Italy. So it's just a matter uh, for me would be to stitch together these these innovation ecosystems so you can really enjoy the, you know, the synergistic networks effects of, of, of a global innovation e- ecosystem focused on the ocean. As far as the short-term output, um, I would really, I would really love to launch or get to work on the digital ocean uh, rather than talk about it abstractly. I'd love to look at a, a smaller body of water, maybe the Baltic or the Mediterranean, and let's just launch the digital ocean in one of those um, areas and then grow it and then eventually uh, grow it to the Atlantic and to the Pacific. And so we, we, we really unleash the, um, the untapped potential of the ocean and the, the digital economy. You know, um, one of the other Innovation Advisory Board members, Kate Pentis, um, and I wrote an article for the Atlantic Council uh, about the uh, digital ocean. And she's she's from Estonia. She's a member of parliament from Estonia, which is a digital nation. And I just want to get to work on it. <laughs> let's let's stop talking and let's let's do it. So. Yeah, Michael, I think you just outlined my dream shore duty. So if they need any motivated <laughs> junior officers to head over to NATO, I will gladly act as a volunteer and, and make that terrible sacrifice. Um, <laughs> well, but I'll be. Well, I was going to ask you, uh, what, what do you know what's next for you? Or are you still? Not entirely sure what's next for me. I'm uh, rotating to shore duty in about a year, but. I'll be sure to also link that article that you wrote in the Atlantic Council to the episode footnotes. Yeah. I'm sure some of our listeners would love to hear that too. Yeah. Julie, do you have any last thoughts as well on these ideal short-term and long-term deliverables? I do. Yeah, you know, I, as Michael said, I think linking these different resources and accelerators together is important. Um, I think the the shared vision that NATO countries have on what the priorities are for creating a digital ocean and for you know developing these maritime unmanned systems could really um, drive innovation. Um, and so, you know, linking these accelerators or creating specific accelerators that target those goals, um, I think would be really powerful. And then having the mechanism to deploy that technology, uh, you know, in a digital ocean ecosystem, like Michael has detailed, uh, I think that would be really exciting. As an operator in the undersea domain, I just find this entire conversation so fascinating. And I've learned a ton about how the area where I will be operating is really going to change over the course of my career. This has laid the the fodder for me to just begin to fathom how different in 20 years time submarines will have to account for all of these different changes and challenges that it provides, but also opportunities of, of growth and expansion. Um, it's, it's truly remarkable to think into the future through the lens that you both have provided Michael, do you have any final thoughts? 
Well, just I, I wanted to thank you um, and, and Simsec for publishing our, our piece. And then thank you for interviewing us. Uh, this is my first podcast. I hope I wasn't uh, too clumsy online. Um, it's, it's really, it to- totally energizes me to talk about this. I, I should say, you know, like I said, I have moved on from NATO. And as you said at the beginning, I'm not speaking uh, on behalf of NATO. I'm just speaking as somebody that loves the ocean, um, that loves technology, uh, that loves this kind of nexus of, of technology, sec- security in the environment. And I see a huge opportunity and I'm ready and, and excited to get after it. So that's just the, a final parting shot from my side. Definitely. Anything else from you, Julie? Um, yeah, thank you for this interview and, and thank you for Simsect for publishing our article. Um, and also, you know, I, I think a big kudos should go to Michael for what he has accomplished in developing the, the Maritime Unmanned Systems Initiative and the Innovation Advisory Board. Um, you know, I think this is a, a really crucial piece in developing our uh, digital ocean, uh, unmanned systems out in the ocean. And I think you're right. I mean, the ocean is going to be a much different place in 10, 20 years from now. And it's exciting to to think about it. Um, and, you know, it's exciting to hear your perspective as well, embracing that change and, you know, um, how that will impact um, you out in the ocean and in the field as you um, do your job. Most certainly. So that's unfortunately all that we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guests, Julie Ingus and Michael Brasser for joining us. You both are emerging subject matter experts in what is certainly to be one of the most dynamic domains on the entire planet. Julie, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Yeah, um, so you can learn more about our company, Open Ocean Robotics, at just openoceanrobotics.com. Right now, uh, we're really busy doing a few different pilots in in various applications uh, as we continue to develop our technology. Um, I'm also pretty active in building the um, ocean innovation ecosystem. And um, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, Julia Angus is probably one of the best ways. And yeah, definitely look forward to connecting with your readers and uh, readers and listeners. Um, And uh, if anybody has any uh, questions or you know thoughts on these subjects um i'd love to hear from them certainly i hope you get some great follow-on questions from our listeners michael same question for you where is your digital footprint and what are you working on (laughs) well um i've like i said i've moved on from brussels i'm now in bahrain out here as a deputy commodore uh for desron 50 and uh next summer i'll fleet up to commodore We've got a squadron, a big squadron of ships out here and maintaining maritime security in in the Arabian Gulf, uh, Red Sea, uh, Gulf of Oman. So it's a really, really challenging environment. You can see how maritime robotics could be really key out here as well. So um, I'll be interested in advancing some of the work I did at NATO over here. Also still serving on the Innovation Advisory Board. So I'll be the senior operator on the board. I will, uh, actually, I'm co-chairing it as well. So I'll stay connected to the NATO project 
through the Innovation Advisory Board, which, as Julie mentioned, is this really phenomenal group of very different people. When we put the board together, we really wanted to um, get a really diverse team together and diverse from, you know, gender and race, but more from experience. We've got an artist on the on the board. We've got uh, Julie. We've got other startup CEOs. We've got a marketing executive from Coca-Cola. So we've got this really dynamic board and it's really fun to synthesize with them on ideas how to accelerate and scale the MUS initiative. So I'll be um, connected to the project through that. And then I'm also, um, uh, see me on LinkedIn at Michael D. Brasser. So please, as Julie said, connect, uh, keep the conversation going. Uh, We're very passionate about the ocean and very excited about the future. Yeah, I mean, just mentioning all of the interdisciplinary parties that are on your advisory board makes me so excited for the future too. (laughs) I've just been thinking here as you guys are doing your outros that if we put this episode in a time capsule and the three of us revisited this in 10 years, I'm sure the results of, of all the work that you both are doing would lead us to just mind blowing uh, outcomes from this perspective that we have right now. So hopefully in 10 years time, we can revisit this subject or so and, and just see how much has actually changed based off these movements that you guys have been the pioneers for. And really with that thought, uh, Andrea, go ahead. I just want, I just wanted to say one more thing. Cause you really got me excited about the, the MUS project. There's so many, like I said, there's 14 nations on it, 18, uh, soon to be 18, and really, really phenomenal people working on that project. It's a really exciting um, project with people that are really focused and, and, and not really constrained by the past. They're, they're, they're charting a new future. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you as you were doing your outro. No problem. I am equally excited to see the future of this project, and you've left us off on a high note. And with that, I'll just mention that Sea Control is produced and edited by Keegan Ingersoll, Ed Salo, and William McQuiston. Thank you for your time, and we'll catch you the next go-around. Oh,